It's the letter from the Apostle Paul, the second one that we have in our Bibles, called 2 Corinthians. It'll be our last installment of this mini-series. I'd like to pray for us that God, the Holy Spirit, would meet us and speak to us afresh. And then Alan will read our sermon passage to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege of having your word living and active, a sure word from the living God. Thank you for this privilege. Help us not to take this privilege for granted. We ask you now to use your word to, to shape us, to affect us, that we would leave here distinctly changed in some way. So, Spirit of God, help us, we ask you. We also ask you to meet our dear friend Joshua Morgan as he preaches right now at Del Cerro Baptist Church just down the street. Would you bless the preaching of the Word at Del Cerro Baptist as well? We thank you for that church, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's hear God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Alan, very much. This is God's word to us, friends. Now, I did announce that this would be a two-part miniseries, but we added an installment this little series about our, our theology driving our ethics in a few different ways. That, that what we believe shapes, must shape how we live. And in the truth we've been talking about, the theological truth is the imago Dei in Latin, the image of God in man. That particular biblical reality that, that humankind is, is the pinnacle of God's creation. That we are moral and spiritual beings who are more like God than anything in the, in the universe. The person sitting next to you is more like God than anything else in the created realm. Isn't that amazing? It staggers the mind. It means that every human being is made equally in, in value, dignity, and worth before God. And so we've applied that truth, we've, we've allowed that theological truth to shape our ethics 
in a couple of ways already in how we think first about the issue of abortion. For the unborn bear the image of God. And then secondly, last week, we thought about the issue of racism, the sin of racism, and the image of God in man, that we must, we must resist any limitation by skin color of those we are called to love. And I, I have a resource in the back that's been given to me and recommended to me. It's, it's entitled, Under Our Skin, Getting Real About Race, Getting Free from the Fears and Frustrations that Divide Us by Benjamin Watson. I was given three copies of this book, and so these are in the back. The first three people who get to the back later on grab a free gift to you if you have interest in reading that. I've, I've been told it is a helpful, very accessible resource. That's what we've seen so far. We added a part three. Because what about, what about people in general, those, those image bearers around you all day, every day? What about them? How should we live toward them? How should you think about and live toward the image bearers in your own neighborhood. Those bearing the image of God down the street or in the next apartment. How should you think about it and live toward image bearers of God that you, that you work with? Even the, the co-worker who bugs you. <laughs> Even the, the person who promotes him or herself. Takes all the credit for the project. How should you think about them and live toward them in the workplace or maybe on campus or in your classroom or wherever you go to, to school? How should you think about eternal image bearers right there in the classroom with you? Does this truth mean to have an impact then? Well, here's how I'd sum up the answer I believe this passage provides, that we must lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus, that God might powerfully open eyes to the glory of Jesus. Here's, here's how I think this passage wants to shape us, that God wants to shape our thinking and our living today, that we, that we lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that God might powerfully, that God might powerfully open eyes so that those around us would see the glory of Jesus Christ. And let's see that together in really three steps, three stages, three parts, you might say, from this passage to catch that big idea. Here's the first. Let's see our role, our role to proclaim, our role to proclaim this good news. Now, here in context, the Apostle Paul is talking about this new covenant ministry he has, this ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ declaring this new way to relate to God. He says in verse 1, by this mercy, the mercy of God, I have this ministry. And so he says, I do not lose heart. I do not despair. And we'll circle back to this. He's going to unpack this idea, but think about that for a moment. Don't you ever despair when it comes to gospel ministry? Don't you ever despair or lose heart when it comes to evangelism and outreach? I do. 
So here he tells us from the outset, mercy helps me not lose heart. Mercy from God as I've received it keeps me going in this gospel ministry. But then he lays out what this ministry looks like both negatively and positively. He says negatively, here's what this ministry is not in verse 2. It's not disgraceful. It's not underhanded. It's not cunning. And he says, we do not tamper with God's Word. That's what our ministry must not be like. No, no trickery, no deceit, no bait and switch, and no messing with the message. I thought about what does this look like for us today? Maybe it's when people are told they can get perfect health from Jesus and, and all the wealth they want from Jesus if they have enough faith. Or maybe it's more subtle, and we tell people, Jesus will give you better grades at school, or Jesus will take away any problem of loneliness you might ever have again. Jesus will be, in effect, your genie in a bottle. If you just turn to Him, grants your every wish, that's tampering with the message. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is sovereign who demands allegiance from every image bearer. He's not our genie on a speed dial. No, he, he might heal you, but He might not. He might bless you with more money, or He might bless you with less. He might change your work ethic so your grades improve. He might make you aware that you are never, ever truly alone if He is with you, but your grades might not improve, and you will probably still struggle with loneliness. The point is, we don't tamper with God's Word. We don't do a bait and switch. There's no deceit here. Instead, look at the end of verse 2. Here's our ministry. End of verse 2. By the open statement of the truth, or the, the manifestation of the truth. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Here's our role. Here's our role today, following the apostolic example. Laying bare the truth. That's all we do. It's not imposing your opinion. It's not being intolerant. <laughs> it's laying bare the facts. The truth about God. That He is holy, utterly different, righteous, and good, and loving. The truth about ourselves, that we are image bearers, we value, we are valuable, we matter to God, and yet we are fallen, rebellious, corrupted. And the truth we lay bare about Jesus Christ, the God-man who came, lived, died, and rose to take away our sins and bring us to God. And we lay bare the truth of the response that one must repent, change their minds, turn from sin, and turn to Christ. And then trust, rely on, hope only in what Jesus Christ has done for them. That's the open statement of the truth we're called to. That's our role. And if you've yet to believe, if you're here this morning and you've yet to believe that good news, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. You're in the right place. In case you're wondering, why is this guy shouting at me? 
No, you're in the right place. Would you just pause and hear what I just said, though? God is good, loving, and holy. You have offended Him in your rebellion. In His love, He sent His Son to live, die, and rise for you. He commands you right now in His love for you to turn to Him and believe, and He will cleanse you as we sang and receive you as His child. I urge you this morning as you listen to this message to turn to Christ. So this is our role, proclaiming that good news, God, man, Christ response. Who is God? Who are we? What has Jesus done? How must we respond? But that message is not always believed, is it? Why not? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul explains next. Secondly, let's call it their need to see. And by there, I mean those image bearers around us all day, every day. Their need, their need to see, to see spiritually. Verse 3, he says, verse 3, and even if our gospel, this good news, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, little context. He's just talked about in verse, in chapter 3, rather, how a, a veil covers the hearts of his Jewish hearers. Oh, many had believed, but many had not. And it broke the apostles' heart. He says a veil is covering their hearts. And he's thinking of when, when Moses used a veil to shield the glory of his face that he was reflecting when he had been in the immediate presence of God. Moses put on this veil, and so the apostle Paul says a veil covers their hearts now. They can't see the glory, the glory of God. And so he says here in verse 3, they are in the category, did you notice, of the perishing. Don't, don't rush past that, that word too quickly. It is veiled to those who are perishing. They're perishing. These, these image bearers who don't know Christ. And they're all around us every day, all day. They're perishing. They're perishing eternally. But they're made in God's image, so they, vow, they matter to God. They matter to God, and they are to matter to us. Now, you might ask, you should ask, why is this gospel veiled to them? Well, he tells us in verse 4. Verse 4 begins, in their case, the God of this world, the God of this age, a powerful, evil, spiritual being called the devil, the God of this world has, notice, blinded the minds, blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He, he deceived the first humans. And that plunged the entire race into sin and misery. And now every image bearer is born spiritually blind. Or they might see physically with their physical eyes, but they have, if you will, eyes of the heart to see spiritual things. And those eyes don't work when we enter this world. We are born spiritually blind. The God of this age has, in effect, blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And notice what, what, what we cannot then see, the rest of the verse says, to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's almost like tragedy upon tragedy. They are perishing, they are blind, and they can't see the glory of Jesus. Notice, who is the image of God? What a perfect passage to conclude this series on the image of God. Here is the ultimate imago Dei. Here is the ultimate image bearer, Jesus. It seems, it seems the apostle has here in mind another scene where, where Moses asks to see God's glory. You recall that? He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I appreciate the impulse but not a good idea. You can't see my glory like you're asking and live, Moses. So tell you what, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll kind of shield you a bit and you'll see the afterglow of my glory, essentially. So now he's saying, by contrast with Moses' experience, when I was converted to Christ, the apostle says, when I was knocked off my horse on the road to Damascus, when I was blinded by a a heavenly light, and I was addressed by the glorified Jesus himself. At that moment, I, I saw something that Moses longed to see. I saw his glory in the ultimate image bearer, Jesus Christ. That seems to be what he's saying. I saw the splendor and majesty of the living God made, made visible, you might say, in His glorified incarnate Son, the ultimate image bearer of God. Now, before we see a bit more of what he says about that, just catch the need that we've seen so far. They're all around us, these fellow image bearers, and they're perishing. They're born spiritually blind. I want to ask you, what, what effect should that have on us? I was asking myself that this week. What effect should that have? How should that help us? Shouldn't it, shouldn't seeing this need produce in us a a deep, heartfelt compassion, a a brokenness at heart for those image bearers around us. Here's why I say that. Because we too were blind. We too had a veil over our hearts. We too were in the category of the perishing. So shouldn't reading verses 3 and four, about our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates. Shouldn't that birth in you and me a kind of broken-hearted compassion? The compassion of Jesus who, when he saw lost people around him, he said, there's, there's sheep without a shepherd. The, the broken-heartedness of Jesus who who lamented over Jerusalem, saying, I I, I longed 
to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And he laments over their coming destruction. Isn't it a call first to the, the love of Jesus who hung out with the religious outcast, the tax collectors, the sinners, and they were, they were drawn to him. They, they loved being with him. Isn't it a call to that kind of compassion? Because we were just as blind and in the category of the perishing. That's why I said we must lovingly proclaim this good news. Compassionately proclaim this good news. I know, I know that I don't have that love and compassion very often. I forget that I was just as blind. I can think, why don't they believe this? Why don't they believe? It's so obvious. The Creator, he's, he's made it so obvious through the creation and this good news. Why, why don't they believe? I forget this heart of compassion. But this week I was, I was over at Bethel Seminary in the morning, and before it opened, I, I took a walk around San Diego State, and my Bible, part of my Bible reading that morning was from Romans chapter 2. So I had this interesting experience. I'm, I'm reading and meditating from Romans chapter 2, and I'm surrounded by college students hurrying to class, and I'm reading how the apostle says, we are storing up wrath for ourselves, storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, just meditate on that verse and walk around Walmart, or walk around a college campus, or walk around your neighborhood. Because here, here was the effect on me. All of these people, they're storing up wrath against themselves right now. And they don't know it. They don't know. They're blind. They're perishing. They don't know. Storing up wrath. A day's coming. It might, be, it might be very soon. When they will be met, the Scripture says, with anger and, and fury because of their sin, their rebellion against God. They, they don't realize it. And my heart began to soften. Friends, we must lovingly proclaim this good news. But here's really where I want to land this morning. What will give us faith to do so? What gives you faith to proclaim good news to those who can't see? Well, thirdly, thirdly, see this. God's power to transform. God's power to transform. Verse 5. Verse 5. The apostle returns now to his ministry, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your bondservants, your, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. So he's back to where he started. We proclaim Jesus. We don't proclaim ourselves. Maybe he's being attacked by others. We're not sure. 
Look, we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. But why, Paul? Don't you want to ask that? You've just said they're blind. You just said the God of this age has blinded their minds. They cannot see. So why do you proclaim it? Well, notice verse 6. Verse 6 begins with four. So there's a logical connection between verse 5 and verse 6. Okay? He's going to give you the reason for his proclaiming ministry. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has in mind, this is perfect preface for our return to the book of Genesis, he has in mind the book of Genesis and the Bible's creation account when there was nothing but darkness. This primordial darkness, darkness everywhere, darkness wherever you looked, if you will. And in that darkness, God spoke light. He said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And he's likening that powerful creative act to Christian conversion, to his own Christian conversion and your own Christian conversion if you are in Christ. Track with me. He's saying, the person who comes to Christ experiences an instantaneous miracle when God speaks into your heart light and life where there was none. He, he, in a moment, He opens your eyes, those spiritual eyes that are blinded, He opens them so now that you see, and what you see, spiritually speaking, Notice, did you catch this? What you see, spiritually speaking, is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the image bearer, Jesus Christ. Do you catch what he's saying, friend? This is, this is the greatest miracle you can experience. A, a spiritually creative act. When God transforms you in a moment... And you are forever changed. It may have felt to you like a lengthy process. And God, God drew me through a process of a number of months. He may have been drawing you for years. But there was some moment, and you might not, have, you might not be cognizant of when it was, and that's okay. Some moment when He spoke light into your dark heart. And suddenly you saw, in some fashion... The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is Christian conversion. And that he is saying, that miracle he is saying, is why he proclaims. Because God did that in his heart. And so he believes God can do it in other people's hearts as well. Are you catching the connection? Verse 5 is our role. We proclaim. Just like the apostle did. We proclaim. But you proclaim to blind people. They cannot see. Verse 6, verse six tells you why. Because God is so powerful to transform as you do proclaim. Proof positive is your own transformation. So let this, friends, let this build our faith. Yes, <laughs> We despair sometimes when it comes to outreach. Yes, we lose heart. But as he says in verse 1, 
by the mercy of God, we have this ministry. So, friends, let us not lose heart. God is mighty to transform as this message is shared. Now, there is, there is so much application we could make to, say, parenting. I would love to launch off into a parenting seminar right now on this very idea of how parents, your ultimate hope, your ultimate hope is in the power of God to transform your child or your teen from within. And so the most important thing you can do is share this good news, model the effect of this good news, apply this good news, keep reminding your family of this good news because God uses this good news to speak light into their hearts that they might see. That was a mini-seminar. That was free. But let's return to where we started. Let's think about all the other image bearers of God all around us every day. The image bearers of God, people who matter to God in in your neighborhood. People who matter to God in your your workplace. Yeah, even the one who bugs you. (laughs) People who matter to God on your campus, in your classroom. How should you then think about them, and live toward them. That's what we're asking, right? What should be the posture of our hearts? I thought of it as kind of like front foot or back foot, you know? Back-footed defense or front-footed offense. Is it, is it build the walls, you know, dig the moat really deep, pull up the drawbridge and keep those people away? Or does this good news and God's power to transform call us to a very different posture and approach? Now, obviously, I'm begging the question. But let me acknowledge something. There's a lot of darkness around us. And it's getting darker. It's getting darker in the culture. Let me just acknowledge that to you. In case you're thinking that right now, you're right. I mean, the good news of Jesus Christ has been powerfully advancing in the global south, they call it, Latin America, Africa, Asia, explosive growth of the church of Jesus Christ in those areas, but not so in the West. The West seems to be growing spiritually darker all the time. And I'm not denying that. In fact, if anything, expect it to get darker. Expect the culture to seem more resistant or to be more resistant to biblical truth and biblical values. But with that in mind, ask yourself this question. Which is more powerful? The darkness all around you or the God who speaks light? That's the issue. That's the question. Which is more powerful? To, where am I ascribing more power at the end of the day as I relate to my neighbors, my coworkers, my classmates? The darkness that has engulfed them, the, the darkness they're contributing to, perhaps, or the God who speaks light, which is going to carry the day in your mind? Here's how I think you can know. Is, is your approach mainly 
back foot? Is your approach mainly defense, mainly keep them away? If so, I think you're ascribing more power to the darkness than the God who speaks light. And I would urge you to let this passage help you as it's been helping me this week. Here, the apostle, again, he looks to that primordial darkness in Genesis 1 when there was only utter darkness around and, and the darkness could not withstand the God who spoke powerfully light into that darkness. And this passage is saying that's what God does into the dark human soul. He speaks light unstoppably whenever He chooses as this message is proclaimed. And then the blind see. They see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't control that. It's not your responsibility to make them see. It's your role to proclaim. It's God's role to open their eyes. And what I'm saying is, the God who speaks light is more powerful than the darkness. Think about it this way. It's Super Bowl Sunday, a very important day. <laughs> Maybe not to some. But in football, in football, they, they often say, hey, the best defense is what? The best defense, they often say, whoever they is, the best defense is a good offense, I believe the saying goes. Maybe we could apply this passage like that. Friends, the best defense is not just withdrawing, as important as strong disciple-making ministry is. The best defense is also going on the offensive to share, to proclaim, to tell them, because God speaks light. Trevin Wax is an author, and in a book review, he put it like this. He said, the fundamental posture of the Christian, the fundamental posture should be missionary, not monastic. He said, the image of, in Scripture of the church, the image of Scripture in the church, sorry, the image in, in Scripture of the church is not a fortress besieged by bar barbarians, but of a missionary people battering hell's gates. That's the picture. Mission, not maintenance. Mission, not maintenance, is the story of the church in Acts, which was under far greater threat than anything we face today. Isn't that helpful? That's living in light of verse 6. Missionary, not monastic. Not a fortress besieged by barbarians. A missionary people on the offensive. Mission, not just maintenance. Friends, we must lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus that God might powerfully, powerfully open eyes to the glory of Jesus. So, how will we do that? How do we seek to do that? Well, most of all by prayer. But let me give you some practical thoughts. You have in your outline this little handout. And if you didn't get a bulletin today and you want one, I think Tiffany has more. And you can just put your hand up and Tiffany will find you. So if you want a handout, uh, wave at Tiffany 
Is Tiffany here? Oh, here she comes. Tiffany will find you if you want a handout. They are in your bulletin. So you've seen this first page previously where it says pursuing our outward purpose. And I should probably change the step-by-step nature of this because it sounds so easy and it's not. But the starting place is making genuine friendships. This is the engine that drives our outreach. This is what we've been accenting for six years. Making genuine friendships with people because they're perishing and they're image bearers who matter to God. So you might genuinely befriend those around you in the neighborhood, in the workplace, on the campus or classroom. And if you're lacking friends here, this has some ideas for you in your existing rhythm of life. There are people already around you to befriend and get to know and show the love of Christ. You might, it's a little late notice, you might use a Super Bowl to that end. If you're going to watch the Super Bowl at home today, you could invite a neighbor over to watch with you. You're cultivating a a relationship. I'm going to be hanging out with some buddies, watching the game. I'd, in some ways, rather just sit on my own couch and watch. But I'm traveling to someone else's house to watch the game because I'm cultivating those friendships. I want to be with them, be together, continue to advance our relationship. That's the engine that makes all of this go. Secondly, we engage in spiritual conversations Thirdly, we invite into our church community. Fourthly, we share the good news. As this passage tells us, the open statement of the truth, right? The open statement of the truth. So we can do that personally. You've got ideas there listed for you, your own personal experience. Two ways to live tracked in the back at the information table. But there's also here something that it says next. It says publicly... You can invite to our Sunday services. Please always do that. But also it says you can invite to the upcoming Life Explored course. And I want to speak to that briefly, this Life Explored idea. Because while while personal outreach, personal, relational, loving outreach is the engine and will always be the engine... We want to take an additional step forward. We want to, we want to bring a, a, a tool here to put into your toolbox that you might invite someone to a context where they can hear the good news, hopefully in a way in which they can understand and, and make sense of it. Because as the culture gets darker, it's harder for people to comprehend it all. There's a God. <laughs> I have sinned against Him. He has sent His Son. I'm called to repent and believe. That doesn't make sense in our culture very much anymore. This course has been designed to build the biblical worldview to help them make sense of that. Now, I'm headed to each home group over the next six to eight weeks to talk a little more at length about this, but I wanted to give you a little sampling of what this is about. You've got the distinctives here. But I want you to see, I want you to see first an example um, from a, a small church, church about our size in Indianapolis, of how they use this course and how God has been at work in them. So can we show that first video possibly? Oh, not that one. That's not the one. Well, we can watch that one. <laughs> Okay, this is something different. This is, um, 
this is actually part of the course. So this is a little um, trailer from the course itself. This video helps you see the quality of, of video and content that they provide. They use videos and there's teaching and Bible study wedded together. So this gives you a bit of a feel for the quality of some of the resource. Okay, why don't we show that? We don't have to show the other video, too. I'll leave that as a home group treat. We'll show that one as well. That just gives you a little bit of flavor of visually engaging messages and then wedded with Bible study that someone who is unfamiliar with the Christian faith can begin to have a worldview built in which they understand God, myself, my sin, Jesus Christ, and how I respond. We want this to be a tool in your toolbox so that next April you can bring someone. So that next April, the week after Easter, you can invite someone. So we've set that as a goal on the, on the bottom of that first page. We've offered to you a goal of invite at least one person. But I mention it now at the beginning of February so you'll start to pray and you'll start to pursue that friendship with this goal in mind of, is there one person, God, I might, yes, share the gospel with right now, don't hesitate, but maybe the best strategy with that one person would be invite in April to this little course where they can hear the gospel, see helpful videos, meet other people, and begin to see God at work, the God who speaks light into the darkness. So I ask you to pray with that goal in mind. Reach out, friends, with that goal in mind, because we are called to lovingly proclaim this good news, that God might powerfully let people like us see the glory that we ourselves have seen. And to that end, we're going to close.